changed her voice. That's exactly what I said when I heard her. Yeah. We're on the web app and not like the desktop apps. This is obviously the joint county commissioner, claim commission, and board of adjustment here in along with our guests, the stars, our rock stars, <laughs> uh, the design workshop team. We'll do introductions in just a moment, but let me get through this if I could. Uh, do we have anybody on Zoom that we need to check on? Yeah, uh, no. Okay, let's do that if we could. Mark, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Perfect. Thank you. All right, Brian. Okay. This agenda was published on the Ralph County website and posted outside the meeting room. This meeting is also available via call-in to Zoom. A link to Zoom is on the agenda. Note that it's important for all commissioners, staff, petitioners, and type microphones to be muted unless speaking. Additionally, members of the public should have their video off unless speaking, and staff will assist you on managing this feature. Those wishing to speak, please raise your hand between staff and myself. We'll recognize you and keep track of who wished to speak and call upon them to do so. For those who are attending without video, uh, we'll need to interject you with, with a lull in the conversation. Those participating via with audio, only can mute and unmute by pressing star six on their keypad. They can raise their hand by pressing star nine. You'll see that, I'm sure. Those participating via computer or smartphone with video can raise their hand by putting the cursor on the picture or square of no video and near the top where there are three dots appearing. One of them is raised <coughs> So with that, that reminds me, if any of you are carrying those feeble cell phones, please, mode. please put them in airplane mode or turn them off before you commence the next phase. And with that, I call this meeting to order of the planning commission with all our guests around any planning commission. Uh, public comment. If any members of the public may address the County Planning Commission on items not on the agenda, when you regularly schedule items, please wait until we get to that phase. Any members of the public? Seeing none, we're past public comment. Items for consideration. Now, I guess I'll turn it over to Chris here. We can just do introductions right now. Sure. Let's do introductions. I'm Brian Kelly. I'm Brian Kelly, I'm the Vice Chairman of the Planning Commission, stepping in for Steve. Lyle Krug from the Board of Adjustment. Craig DePrecia, Planning Commission. Bill Morris, Planning Planning Commission. I'm Proline, Board of Adjustment. Brian Fitzgerald, Board of Adjustment. Kinetic Design Workshop. Jessica Garrow, Design Workshop. Riley Timmons, Design Workshop. Alan Goldich, I'm a Senior Planner. Ren Martin, Planning Commission. Andy Benjamin, Planning Commission. Sarah Macy's, Rock County Commission. Tim Redman, Rock County Commission. 
and the Zoom members who we had out there in the Zoom world. Mark White with White and Smith LLC, subcontractors to Design Workshop. Anyone else on um, Zoom that you care to introduce yourself? So thank you all for attending tonight's joint meeting to discuss Route County land use code update process. We have Board County Commissioners with us tonight, Planning Commission and Board of Adjustment. So thank you all for attending. Um, as you know, this important initiative comes on the heels of the county adopting our master plan. And uh, you know, to implement those policies you all helped create, uh, we need to ensure that our codes are up to par and specifically align with those policies in the master plan. Um, so the project team, which includes myself as the project lead, along with planning staff, with the assistance of Design Workshop, have been working really hard behind the scenes to evaluate our existing code, discuss what's working, what's not, along with coming up with our project plan and our engagement plan that we will be presenting to you all tonight. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Jessica um, to um, walk us through the presentation. Thank you. Um, so we did really quick introductions, um, but I'm Jessica Garrow. I'm a principal with Design Workshop. We are a planning uh, land use, landscape architecture, and urban design firm. Um, we have eight offices across the country. Um, this team is our Aspen um, office and have a lot of experience working in um, western Colorado, uh, western United States. Um, and really excited to um, be working with you all on update to uh, the code um i would just like to mention that commissioner tim corrigan just joined over zoom <clears throat> so this is our our project team um riley is our project manager ashley mcknight is our planner and then um, online is mark white um, he as he mentioned is a sub consultant uh, to design workshop and he is a um, land use attorney and planner. And so we're really excited to be working with him. We've done a number of, of code projects uh, with him. Um, and so excited to have his expertise with us. So tonight, what we wanted to do is um, give just a high level overview of the project. We're gonna talk at you for just a little bit. And then we wanna um, transition it more to a conversation and really hearing from all three groups, what are some of your priorities in terms of the land use code uh, update? Um, so with that, I'm gonna turn it to Riley to run through um, some of our first slides. Great, thank you, Jessica. So we wanted to kind of brief you on a few different things related to the project scope and the schedule. So I wanted to run that um, kind of through in the next few minutes and then speak a little bit more in detail about our engagement initiatives. Um, as most of you know, the zoning code and subdivision regulation code update is intended to update the land use code to reflect the recently adopted 2022 master plan. 
um, some of the priorities that came out of that engagement process really spoke to providing greater clarity in the code language itself, standardizing processes, and working through um, kind of updating language and requirements for staff, elected officials, and the community to create kind of an easier interface um, as the community works within the code. So the project is uh, bifurcated out into four overlapping phases, the first of which we've already um, kind of worked through project initiation and administration. Um, we're currently um, just finishing up our code analysis and issue identification in phase two, and really starting to dive into development and evaluation of code modifications. Um, phase four, which we'll speak to in the project schedule, really is focused on adoption and implementation and handoff. So as you can see from the project schedule, we kicked off um, in December of 2022, and we've been working diligently on our existing conditions analysis, going through the existing zoning code and subdivision regulations um, to highlight and put forth initial recommendations uh, for a code outline in addition to some restructuring um, and clarifications, which Jessica will cover later in the presentation. Um, but we also wanted to highlight that at this point in time, we are anticipating three separate modules for the code uh, analysis and drafting process. And we are um, kind of moving forward in this fashion at this time in order to create more palatable kind of pieces to digest, not only for the community as we start beginning to draft code language, but also for board members and their review and discussions as well. Um, so there are specific topics that are included within each module based upon priority areas that have been highlighted through the master planning process and with staff, in addition to some housekeeping items, which you should have a list of um, in front of you at your table. Um, and those will be kind of supporting um, some of those priority ideas and also incorporated into module three. Um, underneath our kind of main schedule, you can see that we do have corresponding meetings for BCC and um, the Planning Commission in addition to small group meetings and community meetings. So all of these efforts are kind of intertwined, allowing for our team to really take community feedback and board feedback into account as we're working through the drafting process. So we've been here, uh, we got into town yesterday morning um, and uh, kind of went on some site tours and also attended the solar summit and learned a lot about solar yesterday, uh, which was a great kickoff to kind of our first week here. We are um, hosting a series of meetings with our technical working group and our small um, group, which is more of a community facing um, group of stakeholders tomorrow morning. We anticipate hosting three different workshops throughout this process, and we'll be weaving all information into the Navigate Your Route website, which was first created for the master planning process, but which we will be using as well um, for the code update. So this will be your kind of main hub for information specific to surveys, uh, upcoming events, ways to stay involved, in addition to um, kind of announcing and summarizing feedback and what we're hearing from the community as we're working through the drafting process. 
So since we have uh, so many board members in attendance tonight, we really just wanted to take a moment um, to kind of check in on expectations and, and what we anticipate for involvement throughout this process. And really what we're looking for from all of you this evening is um, for you to share your priorities for this process with us and help kind of direct um, and provide initial guidance on um, items that are important to you and your constituents for the code amendments. Um, as we begin to move through the different modules, we'll be coming back with community feedback that's summarized and summarized um, kind of meeting minutes from the different groups that we're working with to help inform some of the decisions in, in um, the code drafting process. And then finally, we will be coming back through the different modules and later this year as well um, to review the final draft code language and adopt um, the proposed code amendments. So we've been talking about these three modules and I wanted to give you at least what we are anticipating at this point in time um, is to be included in each of these three components of the project. So module one and module two are really focused on these key priority areas to come out of the master plan in addition to some of the higher um, import priority uh, housekeeping items as well. But module one really is intended to be focused on introducing the project um, and diving deep into the solar regulation discussion. Module two will be focused on the future growth areas, zone districts and subdivision regulations. And module three will really address the remaining code sections that are kind of outlined from those first two modules. So part of the conversation this evening is um, to get your feedback on this approach as well and really make sure that we're kind of tailoring these discussions um, to the priority areas, not only from the master plan and staff, but from all of the board members as well. And with that, I'll send you over to Jessica. All right, so um, we're gonna dive into you know, what are these priority update areas and, and how do we move forward? But I wanted to pause here and see if there were any questions about the process, community engagement, <laughs> anything that, that we've covered that you have a question on now um, we thought we would just pause really briefly and, and see what that might be, and then we'll move into what we're hoping is the meat of the conversation. How are you all uh, advertising for the community engagement? <clears throat> Great question. So I, that is um, going to be done through a variety of methods. So using existing communication channels that the county has, um, so social media, for instance, um, newspaper advertisements will be creating flyers that can go out in, into the community and then um, we are creating a, um, a list of, of email addresses and, and so there will be kind of notifications that go out that way as, as well. And part of the project team is Amanda Shepard, um, county's public information officer, so um, she has been really helpful in getting information out. Uh, but in addition to the Navigate Your Route website, which we are going to use uh, mainly for a one-stop shop for all the information, um, we are also going to do some of the traditional channels of advertisements in the paper, as well as posters around town, um, and things like that. So we felt those mechanisms worked really well through the master plan um, and our outreach chat was really good. 
just a, a quick question. Do you target specifically like architects, planners, surveyors, engineers within both? Because these are people that deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. So our small group meeting tomorrow is that group. Um, because those are really some key code users, we wanted to make sure we were hearing from them what's working and what is not working so that we have that as part of our baseline conversation. Um, we would anticipate additional um, kind of small focus groups with other interested um, topics, right? So perhaps one on, on agriculture, one on natural resources. So we're still refining that and making sure that that tracks really well through the process. Um, but that's the idea is to kind of dive deeply with some of these groups. And then we also have these boards behind in the back of the room that where we've been discussing about placing somewhere in the county building, maybe in front of the motor vehicle office, maybe in front of the building department, um, so that we can catch those public that's just walking into the building. Um, and I, we're kind of, I think we're kind of leaning towards the building department because that's where a lot of the professionals that we work with, they come through there into the building department. So we feel that's an appropriate location. And then whenever we have another opportunity, such as qualifier conference this weekend, um, Sally will be attending, representing um, the, the project there as well. Um, so opportunities like that. And last night, um, after the invite-only portion that most of you, a lot of you here attended the solar conference, we would go to the library where we had uh, pretty decent participation um, for Hayden, <laughs> and, um, uh, and we actually got some really great feedback. Um, and it was mainly, I think people were interested about solar, and that kind of hijacked the conversation a little bit. But it was good because we did get some good feedback. We'll talk about it later in the conversation. Quick question, <clears throat> excuse me, about the um, the um, timeline that you presented. Mm -hmm. We talked about some rolling adoption of yeah. different elements of this. Where does that fall in? And that's the module. Do you want to maybe pop back yeah. to that? So in breaking it up into modules, um, our goal is that we'll start the drafting process. So we're starting in April, right now with module one, starting that drafting process, and then coming back to you in June for the adoption. And at that same time, we're starting module two. And then we'll come back to you in August, September for adoption. We're starting module three in August, coming back to you in October. And we have this additional kind of public hearings because the goal is to get done sort of at the end of the year or very first part of Q1. It's a very aggressive schedule for an entire code rewrite. Like, it's when we put like very aggressive. <laughs> and if we're here something through the community engagement during module two, where we need to take a little bit of time, we wanted that buffer. And so the idea is that we're, we're hoping that we're sort of ending at the end of 23, um, but we, we needed that space, if you will. Let's go to the next slide. That has the actual description of the so it says solar discussion. So at the end of module one, are we starting to pass regulations at that point? We're going to review them at the, yeah. the commission, planning commission, rather than turn to the commission. That, that, that's the idea. And, and part of what we want to get from this conversation is 
what else should be in module one and module two? This, this is our first um, kind of draft, if you will, of what's included in those modules for that rolling adoption process. And if there's something as we get to the high priority areas that you're not seeing, we want to hear that tonight so that we can sort of adjust our work plan. And we've had a lot of these discussions about this rolling adoption and, and the need for that based on where we're feeling the most pressures. Um, and so that's why uh, we've been working behind the scenes trying to uh, see what is a tangible plan and, um, and present this all to you. So um, we'll be showing you more of what the priority sections are. Um, but that's not to discount all of our detailed housekeeping list that we've been keeping that was in your staff packet. And, and most of those items um, you know, will be addressed in module three. Um, and then we also got some great feedback today from our first uh, technical working group. We'll, we'll get into those uh, details. <coughs> so maybe keeping the bigger stuff isolated and not attaching some because there, there are possibly some housekeeping things that are a little bit simpler that could roll along but really try to just isolate them so we're on point okay and the other the piece that i would maybe mention on this is um as an example we're anticipating that the full update to your definitions happens in module three but when we introduce new solar regulations, we're going to need to add some definitions. If we're dealing with growth areas, we're going to need to add some definitions. So as we go through this process, once we get to module three, you might be readopting things that you've adopted previously, just so that at the end of the day, you've got one clear set of standards. So, you, you know, it'll be a little bit of Groundhog Day there, um, but that's just what happens with the um, rolling adoption. So module one is June, yeah, I'm not going to be able to do that. That's the goal, yeah. And then module two is August. And the end of August, early All right, so let's dive into um, what we think are the priority updates that would um, be in included here. And um, first is solar. So we heard a lot um, about solar yesterday. We know that that is an important issue for Route County. Um, and so looking to include new um, solar regulations for um, kind of all types of solar, right? So utility scale solar, of more community scale and then individual solar um, on an individual residence or commercial building. So um, including that within uh, the updates. Uh, looking at the future land use framework, so land uses will be, we think, an important part of the conversation in modules one and two. Um, looking at tier two and tier three growth areas. So you know you have um, three tiers. Um, we, we think that that's going to happen in module two, just we need a, a little bit more 
conversation, a little bit more time to dive into that. Um, we'll get into this when we get to the kind of discussion of the code outline. But right now we're thinking that um, tier two and tier three might be zone new zoning overlays in the, these areas to start to identify what are the different uses, what are some of the dimensions that might be appropriate um, in terms of thinking about targeting growth to those areas. Um, Stagecoach is something that has come up. We know from staff that that um, is a priority and um, we anticipate that also in module two. Um, so within those looking at permitted uses, definitions and standards um, for those pieces, um, then looking at subdivision design criteria and trying to kind of consolidate some of those things, exploring secondary dwelling units, and then we know that house sizes, something that came up through the master plan process, so we wanted to continue that conversation uh, with the community and um, with this group and, and see where that landed. Um, what we might add to this list, um, just based off of the technical working group uh, conversation today, as well as the solar summit yesterday, um, is temporary workforce housing. And that that might be something that needs to sort of move up into this kind of module one, module two conversation. So we're interested to get your feedback on that. Um, and then the other piece that's important, um, as Christy mentioned, maybe Alan, you have a housekeeping list at your tables. That's happening in module three, but they're really important pieces. And so we just wanna make sure you know we're not like losing that detail. It's just not gonna be that focus um, for the first part of, of the code amendment process. And then um, kind of natural environment considerations are something that we heard a lot from the working group this morning. And we do anticipate a whole new chapter sort of dedicated to natural environment. So floodplain regulations, um, wildfire, wildlife, scenic views, um, but that that also impacts all of these things. And so there may be little pieces of that in these first modules, just to make sure that we're being really comprehensive. Um, these are the, pri the priority update areas. Before I, I pause, one, one more piece that I probably should have started with, apologies. You have subdivision regulations, zoning regulations and 1041 regulations and it's three different documents that someone has to go to to understand what they can do with their property we are proposing to move to what's called a unified development ordinance so you would have one set of regulations um, <laughs> i hear i see some like cheers this is wonderful i love it um it's gonna be a little bit tricky, right, with the rolling adoption. So your true unified development ordinance is not gonna happen until module three, but we need to move you there. That is kind of the modern trend with land use codes. And it's just so much simpler for you all when you're reviewing land use applications, as well as applicants and the community. Um, so that's a, a really important part of, of our recommendation. So I'm gonna pause here and see, is there anything else missing is there something you see here that you just don't think should be a priority area um, for these first modules? What's the code stand for? Sorry, future land use map. And how does how does the future land use map differ from future land use framework? And are future land use maps, do they have any legal teeth to them or are they more just like a dream or a concept because 
and a landowner might not necessarily agree with how his land has been categorized. Um, I'll start, maybe then have Christy and then have Mark maybe join, jump in at the end there. So um, future land use map and future land use framework are very similar, right? The future land use map is, is technically a map. We are not actually updating a future land use map. We are proposing zone districts. And that's where this idea of an overlay for tier two, which includes stagecoach, would come into play. And we would be using the master plan and the area plan for stagecoach to inform that. <coughs> Anything you would add, Justin? I mean, so, I mean, and to be clear, the future land use map exists. Yes. So that's in the stagecoach community. Right? Just for stagecoach. Right. That's the only place in the county that has a future land use map, which really, um, is something that we have evaluated. It was most of you that were part of that process you know that that was a very beloved hour detail added to that plan. And um, so it needs to be evaluated. Okay. Um, so that's why we are proposing to do that with all the development pressure um, that we are seeing in Stagecoach. Well, and we ran into a little bit of that where the zoning was desired to be yes. the same, but we have a process for amending or changing zoning that allows so so that just as long as we kind of clarify that. Yeah, um, and that is that is one of the goals. And then the future link, uh, future link framework, as you know, um, really just strengthens that original concept of direct growth um, to the growth centers. And what we did in the master plan is identify areas of the county that are deemed appropriate for some level of development in a hierarchy of prioritization of our tier one, tier two, and tier three uh, areas in the county. So, um, so that is on the list. Um, so we could really evaluate um, subdivision regulations, design guidelines, and figure out how we want to approach um, development in those areas. Yeah. Um, will tier two and specifically tier three be defined by the area or by standards? I believe we're looking towards standards uh, during the master, and, and this will still be a conversation. Um, we'll probably want to hear from you all, but when we went through creating this growth plan use framework, the idea was um, there was um, an interest to have that flexibility and not to have a hard line in some of these areas um, and then having appropriate standards. So that's where we left off. That is part of the bill to be part of the conversation. I expect we would go the standard route, but um, other than tier one, that are basically just. Uh, that, that's your municipality. Yeah, that's your municipality. Correct. Right. And tier twos, I mean, we're talking about having a zoning overlay for those areas. And so if that's the direction we go, those zone, those zoning overlays are going to define those boundaries that's of those areas. I think about regarding the overlays, whether or not that would be a line on a map or whether or not it would be defined by criteria. I, I think that there's um, maybe a question mark of just because we haven't we haven't really talked about it yet in, in our scoping process. Um, are we actually doing rezonings as part of this code amendment process and saying specifically we're creating this overlay and 
this specific area of land is, is rezoned to, to have that. We haven't had that conversation. And I think that's something that um, I would expect will, will come up through um, just through the process. We have something similar in Oak Creek where we have zone districts versus actual zoning. And it's, it, it does have lines on a map. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's somewhat defined, but it's more like criteria-based versus uh, allowable uses. So there is some workability in there. Is that what this gives yeah. us a little yeah. bit of chance exactly. to yeah. kind of work it? I like it. And, and those are more overlays what you're referring to. And, and hasn't it been a trend to move away from overlays? Is this a rethinking of that process? No, it's no. just really... Um, what works best and what we want to achieve. And, um, you know, there, there was some detail of that. Um, it was more high level in the staff packet. Uh, and we have talked about it more at a higher level, you know, with the project team. But some of these decisions we don't believe we'll be able to make at this, this early in the process. We'll probably want to get more feedback and have more discussion and evaluation to see, you know, the. Um, the benefits to go one way or the other. So, so I, I kind of confused previously because the, like a PUD used to kind of be described as an overlay. You try not to overlay in that fashion, but the PUD actually becomes the zoning. Mm -hmm. and, and this is sort of similar to that very same thought process, just on a, a bigger level of thinking. Yes. Okay. My personal thing is to probably define the boundaries somehow, even if you happen to be selling the property. Say this is in the potential area. Without that, you could have leapfrogging because you were too bad. You had your, your general criteria, but you didn't define the landmass. So somebody ends up going outside what you intended, and then you're fighting that back. <coughs> yeah. I have a question about brought up the UBO mentioned several times, but is, is it used commonly throughout yeah. something we did? You said the water trend. Yeah. How do we put that throughout here? Is it just something that is a guideline? So um what I have done, so the, the last rolling adoption that um, that I worked on is we didn't move to the new UBO until the very last moment. And so we amended zone districts. Um, they had a density bonus criteria that, that we amended. We did, we did that you know, in one set. Then we amended some of the processes in the second set and subdivision. And then in the last set is when we brought it all together and called it truly a unified development ordinance. So. Um, that is just one of the oddities, right, about doing that rolling adoption. But at the end, you will have one document. Our regulations are actually already kind of set up in a way that makes it less painful, is my opinion. If you read through our subdivision regulations, there's a lot of stuff that actually refers back to the zoning document. It's just that they're physically separate yes. So we don't have a separate zoning definition and a separate subdivisions definitions. It's actually a lot of it all goes back to zoning anyway. We just had it spun out into a separate, much smaller document. The two, zoning is like three times as thick as subdivision regulations, and it would effectively subdivision would become like its own chapter. 
commodity within one dot. So it's it's a little bit less painful for us than I think some communities might have. But the history in our case is that we adopted zoning or we adopted subdivision regulations in 1970 and then we had a zoning document. And then we got a zoning in 1972. And so the documents have forever remained separate. But it's, that's really the only reason they are separate now. Most communities have just one document. And one example that I mean, again, it's probably working right now, but you have public notice requirements in the zoning regulations and the same public notice requirements in subdivision. And it's just taking up more space than you need, right? And so you can get rid of some of those pages by combining those together. I would say it's definitely best practice um, when the recommendation being of the main Mark, was there anything that you wanted to add, or did we kind of go past that piece? No, I think that's good. I mean, I know the one of the original questions was the legal status of the future growth area maps and the future land use map, and the, the what we're doing implements the map. The map is just long range planning policy. It's not a zoning map. It doesn't regulate uh, land use or land development. That's what the UDO is going to do. So just to make sure that's clear. Thanks. Fundamental question. Talk about 1041 regulations. Yeah. What are they? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, um, so 1041 refers to, um, I think, state statute number, um, right, yeah. Um, and it's areas of interest, basically. It's, it's areas that the county has an interest in. And it tends to be kind of environmental focused. Um, and so again, other counties have just sort of integrated that, that in. So it's, I don't know, do you, have you guys had a 1041 review recently? No, typically we rely on our special use permit process for anything that would fall under 1041s, but the types of projects that the county has adopted 1041s for are major wastewater and uh, new wastewater systems, major expansions of wastewater systems, um, new water systems, major expansions of existing water systems, airports, and I think there's one other one that I can't remember off the top of my head. They are, and then the uh, local, the counties or local jurisdictions have the opportunity to adopt those. I don't think there's a requirement that they be adopted, but you have the option to. Who promulgates them at the state level? Say what? Who generates them? Who promulgates them? Oh, yeah, it's at the state level. Yeah. It's the state legislature. It's the state legislature that and that kind of writes them. Um, for Route County, it was adopted by resolution 10 years ago, maybe? No, it was longer than that. 2007. Yeah. Time flies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 15 years. Um, so, it's, it's just a standalone PDF on the county's website right now that is the county hereby adopts these 1041 regulations. So they just sort of 
live in this other other PDF that you have to go and, and find if it's where to apply. It's alignment with statutory and legislative requirements and that brings up that basically says we we follow those legislative pieces versus having our own process or our own review. We utilize some of the things that have been put in place. Is that a yeah. good way of just simplifying? What we did what Alan was explaining is in our land use chart, we have processes that we've included in our land use chart for most of them require special use permits um, rather than the Ten forty one two is traditionally something that is of statewide interest. Mm -hmm. So you can see some examples on the Dolma website, Department of Local Affairs, of the types of things that are more appropriate for this kind of 1041 than regular issues. Question on uh, solar. Uh, broke that into three categories that we talked about in the first week. Uh, Utility scale. Industrial, community, and individual is the way I paraphrased that. Yeah. Uh, does the county now have zones set up for industrial uh, solar? No, we we've got some we've got some renewable energy standards, but they are not adequate for a review of the scale that we have been approached for. Um, but our regulations are going to address all scales of solar, whether it's uh, industrial community, which is normally 100 acres or less, and then residential and commercial scale solar. I come from an area where good agricultural land is included solar farms, 500 acres, 100 acres, 80 acres, and it's, it's smart. It's affected the landscape. I'm using a prejudicial term, but the word marred is it's subjective. Certainly we're going to need solar, but very sensitive to that at this point and uh, did not participate or was not part of the conference yesterday. So that some of this may be redundant. Okay. And we certainly intend on addressing all of those issues that you just brought up in, in the regulations. Legislation right now. Yeah, there is. <laughs> so, are you going to know what you need to know as you commence to these modules? I assume they're adjourning in a few weeks. Can't do any more damage at that point. That, that's the hope, right? <laughs> I mean, unless there's a special session, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, we're we're tracking that. Um, you know, a lot of action, if you will, on the kind of housing and growth management front within this legislature. Um, and once the session is over and we understand kind of what's the status of all of these bills and what are some of the timelines that are involved with, with them, um, we'll be able to say we're good with this schedule or we need to go faster for some, you know, for some reason there are, there are some jurisdictions that are going to need to go pretty quickly into some amendments if um, 1255 passes the Senate. Um, so well, we are tracking those things. Wasn't there just, didn't something just pass? And then they carved out some of the local. And I'll admit, I, if there was action today, I did not track I, I today. It was yesterday. The Senate bill passed. 
did it pass two, it? Yeah, 213. We've been working on 213 and 1255, which is the House bill, to try to make sure that there's no preemption of local control and the counties aren't impacted. So I don't anticipate that we're going to see any kind of dramatic needs or this because we're not kind of in the bucket of the people yeah. that they're trying to upset, essentially. Right. I think that's right. <coughs> Um, let's see, anything else on these priority areas? Okay, okay. Um, okay so um, just really quickly, uh, included in your packet, some just light evening reading uh, <laughs> on land use codes, um, is uh, we did a code analysis memo. And what, we, what we did is we um, reviewed your uh, new master plan. Um, identified the, the high priority topics that we just went through and then identified some very specific code updates by section. Um, and we're not going to go through that line by line tonight. So if there is something that you saw in that and have a question on or really want to put a fine point on, um, please please share that in, in the conversation. But, but we are not going to go line by line, excuse me, through that 30 page document. Um, what I will say is that there are sort of seven maybe high um, kind of overarching um, comments that we have about your regulations that we're going to be incorporating. So um, first is um, making sure that the code's clear and doesn't require interpretation most of the time. Right? There's always going to be the one-off that requires a little bit of digging and an interpretation. But as a general kind of course of work, uh, making sure that the code is, is clear and that we have good definitions for the things that you are um, are working through. So we need to kind of hear that from you of what feels vague right now that um, could could be just kind of more, more specificity there. Um, articulating the why in the regulation. So you're just coming off of a really great master plan process. This is the perfect time to be updating your codes um, and really pulling specific statements, quotes from the master plan to say, this is why we're regulating this in this way. So pulling that into zone districts, for instance, and, and including that into a purpose statement, pulling that into um, regulations related to the environment, for instance, or sustainability or solar, and just really making that linkage to the master plan very, very clear so that as review bodies in particular, you can kind of look to that um, and community members can look to that to say, this is why I maybe have to go through this review process. Um, moving in process, we have been clear about your different review processes and not overcomplicating things. So the things that you as a county want to encourage, making those administrative reviews, things that require a little bit more conversation, making sure that those are very clearly going to planning commission, going to board of county commissioners, um, making sure that the variance process for board of adjustment is really clear so that it's just we're articulating that um, in, a, in a very straightforward way. Um, we've heard this um, today in the working group with the idea of enforcement and just making sure that it's clear, again, thinking about definitions, clear language, and knowing what are the steps for an enforcement action should that be needed. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, We've heard a lot about um, reinforcing the ideas of sustainability. And so that is, again, kind of 
probably an overarching piece to what we'll be um, incorporating into these updates and just making sure what's in the master plan, what's in the climate action plan, that that is kind of brought in either as a reference or as um, statements. Um, incorporating those growth tiers in an understandable way. So right now that's anticipated to be as a zoning overlay. Um, and then building off of the engagement from the master plan and not duplicating it. So there's been a lot of work that the community has put into the master plan. We don't wanna go back out and ask those same questions. So when we're doing our code process with the community, it's gonna be a little bit more nitty gritty. It's not gonna be the high level values because you've heard what those high level values are. It's gonna be that, okay, now this is how we're implementing those values. And what do you think about that implementation process through code language? Um, so that's, our, that's the analysis memo. Can go to the next slide if you will. So initial recommendations, talked already about the UDO. We think that's just really, really important addressing inconsistencies, redundancies, clarity, codifying those areas of the master plan, as I said, um, updating terminology, so being really clear about terms and definitions. Um, your code, like this whole thing here, has one graphic, like one graphic. Um, so we're gonna be adding some more graphics. So that'll help you as review bodies, as well as community members, property owners, applicants, to understand what is meant by these. So that, like, you know, picture's worth a thousand words, really being, you know, using that, that to our advantage. And then as we said, the drafting the modules. So with that, I'm gonna start to stop talking. Grab a drink of water. Um, but we wanted to hear what your um, priorities are. And I don't know why this, if the slides stuck again. This happened today, we don't, this morning. We don't it's equipment, it. I got it. There it goes. There's new stuff coming. I know, I know. There it goes. Um, a couple quick We don't restrict tiny houses. We don't have a minimum house size. We don't have a maximum house size. And so during the master plan process, we had discussions about putting a restriction on the, on the, the house, the, how big you can build a house but there was never any discussions on making a minimum or limiting tiny homes or anything like that. The other items unrelated, uh, like the charging stations, uh, is there any consideration of that as we go through the, the transition to EBFLs? Um, how are you going to adapt those? Or yeah, so a lot of those are recommendations in the climate action plan, and a lot of what we're going to be doing is aligning those policies within the master plan. Um, so we will be addressing that. But I would assume we would be open your average charger out there, or even a call, is in one of the two of my areas, as opposed to out in the county support. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How do you want to start those things close to work if you want to be in spend money? Yeah. Exactly. So. Okay. All right. Um, so these are um, kind of the four key questions that we wanted to talk with you all. And if, if it's all right, we'll maybe take them one by one. And. Um, just hear from you. And so the first one is, what are your priorities for the code update? 
And that could be something as specific as this code section is really hard to understand, or I always have an issue um, kind of making sure that we're applying that correctly. Or it could be, in general, the process does this, and you know, this is my feeling about that, just process overall. Um, so just what are your priorities for the code update? Clarity, simplicity, one dog. Short, sweet, to the point, right? What do others think? Some opinions on the variance criteria. Care to share? I think they're more appropriate for us than the next. And, uh, or questions you need, or modulation. You know that one of my problems is uh, establishing a zoning district for existing small lots, tiny lots. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see that happen, but I think it's more appropriate to discuss not in the general focus, but in the specific areas. We went through. Corrigan has some. Oh, has this All right, go ahead, Tim. Laundry list. Go ahead, Tim. Commissioner Corrigan, you're on. He's not even speaking. Frozen. Yeah, he's frozen. I think he's not here. Can you hear us, Commissioner Morgan? I think he's frozen. So, so back to the smaller lots. Through some of our housekeeping in the past, I thought we went through and tried to identify about a bunch of those outliers and offer them paths to come into conformance. And I didn't think we had a ton of those small lots left in the county that were maybe problematic. Am I wrong? Um, well, the Board of Adjustment, um, you know, had a good year during COVID, um, deciding on about 19 of those applications. 19. So can you be more specific? Are these small lots within a platted subdivision, small lots, you know, what I think of as meets and bounds? What are, yeah, what they, are, they were mainly um, leftover lots. Um, I would say the less desirable lots, they're... Um, most of them are zoned agricultural forestry, but they are really substandard in size. But yes, but not, meet, meet so about, we're not talking not down platted. below. Okay, not platted lots. Right. Yeah, gotcha. I got you. So these would be less than 35 mm -hmm. acre parcels. Yeah. 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 Yes. And there was something on the slide from earlier today about non-conformities and uh, 
clearing, uh, providing language that is more clear in that section, because I know my personal use of that section, every time I read it, I have to say, what does that mean? And so if I can't even understand it, how are we expect the, expecting the public to understand it? So um, clarifying that section of the regulations, the nonconformities and nonconforming uses and lot sizes and structures, that is, that is on the list to be addressed. I think what we really get into with these tiny lots are bigger things than you think because the door you don't most of the good land mm -hmm. on to the left of it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the problem with the setback is generated not just by the substandard size of the meets and bounds property, but the, by the topography. You know, the 30% rule that we try to apply at Steamboat Lake or Stage Junction, wherever. And what do we do about that with these, we're calling them tiny, but they're between five and ten or fifteen acres easily, that they've got issues. Mm -hmm. yeah, some of the project subdivisions are a lot lots from a lot smaller than that yeah and i think he's talking about like those mre subdivisions that or the subdivisions that were created prior to zoning prior to 1972 that are like one to two to three acres and when the county adopted zoning we applied the mre the mountain residential zone district which has 50 foot setbacks and so some of these like yeah yeah all of stagecoach. Some of those. Oh, whole other animals. Sky <laughs> There's a hundred of them out there. I thought you were referring more to like maybe orphans versus <laughs> things that are in in a platted subdivision. There are old subdivisions that are platted in the county that have tiny lots. Excuse me for using that term, but it's certainly bigger than Sure. But I think I, I kind of think of, of the, the platted subdivision differently than an orphan lot that's just a leftover from a long time ago. So uh, I, I, again, I haven't. I don't remember them being as much of a an issue when it comes to us. I also think the planning staff does a great job, at least for the planning commission, of weeding through a lot of that ambiguity and providing guidance to help us get on the right path. Do you find that there's a lot of ambiguity in our code, or are there just specific areas where you're seeing things that need to be tightened up? Um, you have a decent amount of ambiguity. Okay. And sometimes that's okay, right? You know, if if you're going through a PUD process, it tends to be a subjective process in any jurisdiction because you're evaluating something that's different, that's not necessarily contemplated within your existing zoning or other regulations. And so it's important that the review bodies can kind of balance kind of what is the community benefit that is received in, in, in exchange for giving this development right. So you, you want a, that kind of flexibility, but you also want clarity. And so there's a fine line there. And I think the PUD acts as a good catch-all 
to be able to address things that fall outside the normal definitions. At the last planning conference in Aspen Snowmass, there was a lot of discussion and developers and planners sort of universally, I'll say, hated the word PUD, but from a planning commission standpoint, it seems like a useful tool for resolving issues and problems. It just might be a little bit more onerous or involve a little bit more fees, but it seemed like it had its place in our toolbox. And, and go, go ahead. We just asked a lot this morning about the fact balance between priority and consistency, so we all have a general idea, but allowing flexibility for site-specific mm -hmm. interpretation. And, you know, part of that is also developing criteria. And you know, we had this conversation with Commissioner Macy, you know, about developing some type of checklist and next threshold for um, wildlife habitat impact with regard to certain development in certain areas, you know. Um, writing that line, you know, kind of those things that support for our quality of life, um, site specifically, um, and allowing that flexibility to be one of those Yes. And I hope that this is a lively conversation. What challenges do you experience with the current code when you're reviewing applications? What what issues do you have? Normally this is where folks like chime in and they've got their laundry list, but maybe you, you might not, and that's okay. Um, but what challenges do you do you experience as reviewers of these applications? Outdoor recreation. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit more about that. Uh, ag forestry. In the past, it's like I'm agriculture, and I'll grow up in the uh, forest with the rifles. So the two just don't cross over. So when we get ag forestry things with outdoor recreation. A zip line or a snowmobile tour. Uh, there's some overland interests out there in the ranch for the cow, but just don't have any snowmobiles. Uh, and we tend to cross the line back and forth with sometimes at site so, so we do cross up and the mountains, turn it out down and down and down and flat. The same I, I myself, I like coming to Planning Commission and trying to catch my afternoon nap a little late. So I, I like you to be really clear. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, doesn't always happen that way as my fellow Planning Commission. Fast. It rarely actually happens that way. But I, I think some of these things, and Andy alluded to it earlier, especially with stagecoaches, we don't quite have, at least in the mind of some of the people that live down there, there there's not a confluence of thought as to what, what's going on. I mean, I'm stating that fairly. Um, and so the more clarity you can, that you can lend to what's going to be a large growth area, even though it's tier two, I think the better off we're going to be because we know we're seeing things from stage. Yeah, we know we're seeing things. 
How many variances have we issued in the past? Again, I have a short-term memory on some of these things, like when we deal with it and it's gone. You don't see those. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so that's why the variance comes in at, Conditions. The, at the BOA. I remember sitting in on a BOA meeting and, yeah. and that's where we were seeing it. Yeah, I, like for that's us. That's a whole separate process. Yeah, for us, we don't, like, I can't remember. But I'm speaking about the issue of I know Linda and I have sat in on some of the adjustment here before. Yeah, so I know it's so upside yeah, yeah. yeah. So some communities, when, when we talk with them, um, we hear that I felt like I had to approve a project that I didn't really feel comfortable with because I didn't have the tools in my review criteria toolbox. Do you ever feel that way? Or do you feel like you've, you've kind of got the review criteria that you need to evaluate projects fairly and that they're cap that, that captures kind of the key issues that are being um, brought forward in the application? Yeah. 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 Um, and this is uh, something that makes me a little crazy is that sometimes I think we, because of where code is written, we force people to create impacts that aren't necessary and aren't there already because they don't fall into a certain category. Say they want like a, a seasonal use of some sort. Well, we don't have a category for that. And so they end up doing like a, a recreational facility, right? Or they make, they have to turn something into a dwelling that's otherwise not considered a dwelling. And then they have to get into road regulations. And then they have to put in a septic. And then they have to do all of these things. So that's actually creating more impacts. It's not limiting impacts. And I think that that's a gap in our regulations that needs to be addressed to allow people to do uses that have fewer impacts um, without forcing them to do major development that they don't want to do. Yeah, and we, we spoke about this a little bit this morning. Um, we touched on it with a technical working group, uh, specifically with Todd Park, our building um, official. And we have run into this situation a lot, and we are going to be working with Todd a lot on the building code they don't always align with your regulations. So we may have uses that have different requirements in the building code or vice versa. And that's why we run into some of these issues where we may allow something in our regulations, but under the building code, uh, it takes it to a whole other level. Um, that hunting, you're, you're kind of using that well, last I mean, hunting one. I mean, there, I can think of any number of them. But uh, the most recent one was um, uh, a yurt that exists on the property. It's not even, I mean, it's on a seasonal road. It's, there's no access to it probably six months of the year. 
but they're going to have to turn it into a full-on dwelling with a full-on septic and a full-on road for a thing that only gets used a few months a year. And I just feel like we're creating impacts in rural Rock County that don't need to be there for what are otherwise really low impact uses. behind the scenes a lot of different um, techniques that we can use uh, to address some of these issues. And it speaks to what we were talking about earlier um, about how to address some of these land use issues in our code. Zoning districts um, versus overlay um, and there's some others that you know we're still um, considering along the way. Sarah's point, um, you know, this this is something that you know we have recognized, um, and you know another example would be you know, the daycare facility. If some of you remember that application, um, where that is something that is allowed through a conditional use permit, so it went to the planning commission, um, but under the building code, um, it it bumps it up to a whole other level and. For these folks to move forward with daycare, I mean, there was a considerable amount of money that needed to go into that house to be turned into a daycare facility under the state code. And these are just some of its considerations, but you know, your example and, and why you know um, some of these become problematic that we recognize. So. And having something that relates possibly to the seasonality of use versus full-time use could help clarify that a little bit or, yeah. or simplify the process. Because what you're talking about is not making it more onerous. Well, not just more onerous, but impacts. I mean, there's, there's types of, you know, like small cabin and woods kind of things that are used very rarely. It's, it, it's technically permanent and that you're not going to take it down in 90 days. But in fact, it's used only a very small amount. It's not technically a dwelling. And there, I think that there should be a mechanism for allowing people to sure. have very low impact uses like that without forcing them to have a, a full-on road that meets road standards and all these things because those are creating huge impacts in very, very rural areas unnecessarily, in my opinion. And, and we don't really have a mechanism for that at all. So people don't, I mean, there's a lot of them out there that we all know about that they don't come through any process. But if they did come through a process, they either have to be torn out or they have to build a road, put in a septic, get them, you know, I mean, a lot of a lot of things that are actually creating impacts and having effects on natural areas where there aren't any. Right. So two dots in front of mine, this is like getting like many I know. 
But like, I mean, you know, you could go back somewhere. No, there's a fire purposes. Yeah, that's it. I guess is my question. I agree with the the sanitation, but. But honestly, there's cabins up in the woods, places where the fire trucks never get to get there before that thing burns down. So why have the road be up to fire? But that's a really technical thing that you can hash out sometimes. And outdoor recreation ends up as like a catch-all for dealing with some of those particular yeah. And, and you know, Sarah and I have had these conversations, and it's come up, you know, through the public um, this issue specifically. Where I struggle with, and I don't think it's a bad idea to consider some sort of seasonal use, but where I struggle with that is I'm thinking about stagecoach, right? So, do we want to consider having 1,300 nerds out in stagecoach, right? You know, that are only used seasonally, but it's also probably, you know, somebody that can afford to live elsewhere that's probably going to. Maybe not follow the rules and use it seasonally, you know. So how do we regulate that? And so that's where I struggle. But wouldn't that kind of almost be like that Steamboat Lake subdivision? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. People, people were up there camping on their property. Yeah, we get calls every day about you know lots of stagecoaches, uh, Steamboat Lake. That it's like oh, saw this uh, lot advertised, really great deal. It's really cheap. It's like. Yeah, and that's where, you know, Michael gets to tell them <laughs> <laughs> why that is. But, yeah. Sucks being the new guy, then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And don't some of the HOAs, Stagecoach in particular, I only know this because my brother lived in an RV on his lot until he got kicked out. Mm -hmm. So the HOA was like, you can't do that anymore. That was your brother? <laughs> I don't. This was this was long enough ago that I don't know you were in that seat. Sarah was, and again, you know, I appreciate that comment because out of anyone that's sitting here at the table, Sarah actually has been involved in this process longer. I think longer than any of longer than any of us. And so you you have that valuable out outside looking in kind of angle. And you, you've talked about this particular thing, especially with that last meeting. So I think it's important to kind of work, work through that a little bit because there should be some mechanism in place to understand that there are limited impact uses that do occur on ag forestry lands. It's really mostly those ag, for, ag forestry spots that that kind of pops up. Um, maybe another kind of question related to this, something that we've sort of heard um is your temporary workforce housing regulations that those are maybe a challenge does that sound right and anyone yeah. want to add add anything on those specifically what what you're looking for and and what needs to change in order to make that a little bit more useful for you well what city needs to annex in brown ranch that should have happened a long time ago and we would not be in this position and so it always gets pushed out to the county. We just permitted a temporary, I need to follow Jim's, we're not calling it man camps anymore. <laughs> but personally, you know, the sanitation becomes a major issue. And the one we permitted, they're hauling the sanitation. It, it, the driver takes a, long, a wrong turn and within a quarter of a mile, he's hitting a very dangerous railroad bridge adjacent to the Yampa River. 
again, is that something that we want to be doing in the county? I'm not sure. I'm not sure at this point. We fortunately have not seen a lot of those land use requirement requests and selfishly, I hope we don't. Um, so how much we need to be adopting new measures code, I'm not 100% sure yet. The conundrum we're in on that one is uh, and it's been addressed in a couple ways by Andy's brother, who's probably just living with us. I was. <laughs> <laughs> so the, and the trailer just rented. <laughs> and I should say, for the record, Tim had just been adopted in the city of Springfield Spring. I live in a trailer on the second switchback of Laurel Lane in the city limits of yeah. 72. So I was there before. Um, but in any event, the, the workforce housing, I don't see that issue going away. We might like it to go away, but with the cost of, of housing and people trying to get an entry foot, we got an employer like the solar people we were talking about yesterday. Maybe the carpenters coming in to do some condominium project and take this thing over when we're done with it. You know, that type of discussion. But I, I just don't see I, the solution. To me, I, I, I would rather incentivize our communities. And, and I'm not necessarily just looking at, at Hayden, but I'm also looking in Moffat County. There are developable lands that have the infrastructure, water, sewer, electric, that may be a better resource than in the county, in the ag forestry. So. Yeah, and it depends where they're going, too, because Highway 40, and I do a lot of CDOT work, and believe me, I look around at the projects I work on, and I go, why can't you get some passing lanes on Highway 40? between Steamboat Springs and Craig. And the more we load that Craig end, it's coming at us without anything that I'm hearing from CDOT that is out there trying to do something about passing lanes on Highway 40. It's like transportation in general. They're, they're done, yeah. you can't separate them. Yeah. You know, that's right. where it's more affordable locations are living. That's where more service workers are coming from. Um, it's going to continue to grow and get Example that was used was Olympic villages. Right, 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 right. right. That makes sense. Okay. 
are there is there a place for it and you know going back to your original comment Ren, in a special circumstance or in limited usage for um, short periods of time is it a tool that's at least worth considering or are you saying that we're we're doing more harm by utilizing that tool um the sanitary aspect mm -hmm. is is i think one of the largest challenges the water bottled water yep. sanitary and so right now it's three years and, and that's going to work for what we just permitted and on a case by case scenario um the tools we currently have may may work if you start looking longer term the first question is where's the water and the sanitation coming from division of water are they going to have issue with one well serving a 60 unit man camp sonia can yes. tell, <laughs> tell us yes, what they are so and and then where's that sanitation going to come from and this and we're talking in the ag forestry zoning primarily um, with with our mining really not coming back to route county um, we're probably not going to see those demands whereas peabody um, if, if they were up in operation sure we could have looked at a we could have looked at a long-term uh, temporary housing for them and they probably could have come with on-site sanitation you know small small sanitation system and, and enough potable water but I think in the scenarios that we're envisioning in the ag forestry, there's going to be a lot of major issues. And um, you'll probably hear a lot more from the public. And we, as you know, managers of the PNZ, we're going to have major issues with the, with the infrastructure demands. So. And I think that's um, a lot of the points that you made is why the regulations are written in the way that they currently are limited to 50 people um, and you know, three years and for it to be you know, temporary. Um, Commissioner Corrigan, I'm sure it's a lot to say on this topic, but um, you can't run please. He talked all <laughs> So I'm wondering if um, I don't want to take us too far of a right turn or left turn off of this topic, but um, is this the place to talk about wildlife a little bit? Because I'm kind of wondering, these questions feel like they're written a little more towards the planning commissioners who are actually reviewing these applications and making the recommendations. And I guess my question is, you know, are is the code adequate in terms of wildlife crossings and corridors, riparian habitat, um, the types of natural resources and hazardous zones that are articulated in here that we need to be kind of looking at and mapping out? Like, do you guys have enough information, do you think, within the code to say, you know, we need to maybe locate the structure over here because we have a wildlife corridor? Um, some of you who were at the solar thing yesterday know that I personally think that our mapping is insufficient in that area. And it's, you know, it's dated the CPW and there are challenges, but, you know, I'm not on the front foot of reviewing these applications. So I don't know if you feel like you have enough information that, feels to me like we could be doing better in those areas. I think we had a couple of people on the Zoom who wanted to comment on, on that at some point when we do public comments. So I want to just throw that out there about the, is that where we're talking about overlays and zone districts or, you know, as planning commissioners, do you feel like you have what you need? Has there been a 
environmental wildlife survey that could inform future zoning so that that can happen between now and this final period. Yeah. At that answer those questions, maybe inform those questions about those questions about wildlife crossings and riparian habitat and stuff. that have come after the adoption of the climate action plan we have been seeing staff linking that in our, to our discussion so i think it's starting to filter its way in some of the applications were pre so it, it doesn't apply to that but you still even reference it so that it is in the conversation at least and, and recognized yeah, and, and as Jessica pointed out earlier, um, one of the first uh, few slides, you know, one of those thoughts when she was talking about the purpose statements is to pull a lot of those pieces from these other plans, like the Climate Action Plan, the Wildfire Mitigation Plan, um, Hazard Mitigation Plan, we can take those purpose statements and incorporate them to strengthen the codes. Um, and then part of the process, this morning we had um, Tim Sullivan and Paul Boney from uh, Sustainability Council. Yep. Um, so <coughs> they are part of um, informing all of you on um, some of the recommendations for the Climate Action Plan. Um, and then a lot of people in that group are on various subcommittees along the land use working group with the Climate Action Plan. Um, so making sure that you know those recommendations come before you, um, and we can fully incorporate those. Mm -hmm. 
and one, one thing that I would add to that is, um, right, like just kind of listening, there's a lot of moving pieces, right? There's a lot of plans, there's a lot of, kind of long range planning that the county has done. One of the things that we are going to do, and you can expect this kind of in packets and in future meetings, is we'll be taking, these are the statements from the Climate Action Plan or the Hazard Mitigation Plan or the Master Plan. And that's what's informed this code section. And that way you can have that link and you can really draw that clear line of this is what the policy was and now this is how it's implemented in code. And so you can see there's a policy in, in climate action plan that design workshop you didn't include. And that's really important to me and you need to do that. Or I understand you've captured what I what's important and, and we can move forward. So we want to make sure that you've got that kind of breadcrumb and that kind of pathway, so to speak, to make sure that the those great policies that you've been working on are implemented in the code. But I think I don't know if anyone really addressed your question directly, so I'm I'm going to. Uh, I the wildlife one or the wildlife okay, one, yeah. yeah. I, I wanted to go back on that one. I don't think we have adequate information for that because uh, we rely on CPW as a referral agency to to comment on wildlife. Sometimes they don't. They're super understaffed right now, and so sometimes we have to we have to continually ask them to get referral responses. And then they're a they're an agency of the state. They are taking their orders from the governor, and he has particular priorities depending on the administration. And so sometimes that they're limited in what they can say and what kind of comments they can provide based on whatever the administration's policy direction is. So um so we but we get all of our information from cpw and so with those two issues that i just identified i think the county could do a better job by having their own set of data so that in case we don't get a response or we don't agree with the response from cpw we have some information that we could go to and rely on for a particular decision I'll second that. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I think CPW, A, they're inundated, understaffed, they'd say under budget. Um, and, and on our habitat, it's already so fragmented in what we are permitting. And so they, they're looking at larger habitat components. Now, if we were permitting a wedding venue in the middle of a thousand acre ranch, you know, in North Route, um, they would probably have comments. Um, but on many of the smaller impacts, we don't ever see their their comments. And, and frankly, there are times when we would like to see them. For example, we had an application for um, a, prime, a new primary house and an historic secondary dwelling that was at opposite ends of a 55-acre parcel. And in a pretty nice little piece of elk habitat area here in South Valley. And could have been at a time when we would have liked to have seen comments to help us with, no, don't, don't allow this use be, because of the separation of impacts on a 55-acre lot. They're not going to look at it. They're, it's already too, <clears throat> too much of a fragmented habitat for them to consider if yeah. we can't get this information from CPW, where do we go? Right. And that's why I wanted to circle back. And that's what's like so. it's a huge under, right? Like, I mean, locally to remap 
all those zones, but maybe it's a priority, or maybe you use some of the information and then there's other data you can have a from a local group that does that type of you know, baseline development and ecological impact studies. It's not that challenging. I mean, CPW does have okay maps, and they are updating, as we heard yesterday, their maps from, <clears throat> you know, so they'll be current in November and December, and the migratory path they did along through the GPS tower. So that's okay. really good. So that'll be um, accurate. Really good. But I think the question is, you know, deciding what's a priority for us conservation-wise and <clears throat> pulling those data from where they're available. Nature Conservancy has some good information. CPW has good information. I mean, our plan is not going to create a science department and go out and do this, this work again. I mean, but we can compile something and basically make it our own, which I think is a lot more powerful than necessarily having to rely on the agency because we can then say our guidance document shows that this, you know, even though it's a 55 acre, like you're pointing out, um, you know, this is important for elk. We've gotten this data from X source. CPW maybe isn't there to, to testify, or maybe they are. What they're doing in Gunnison County is they've elevated CPW at least to um, energy projects as an up or down vote. So they've taken their maps, adopted them, and basically given them that much elevated authority over whether or not projects can advance. Now, I don't think we want to do that, given all the things we've described, but I think Brown County could have its own map that comes from data that is scientifically sound. What about university, CSU, or CU, or? And there's a lot of data that's there, right? So you have things like proxy species, like how many do you have to be from the health course showing those stress indicators, especially during the multiple times like having a overwinter times, right? And it's like 365 feet. And so you think about moving one structure and then having an additional structure in that, you know, like we saw in the planning conference like that, that circumference of impact, negative impact species. It's that much. So there's things there. It's just like hiring it and making it useful for our needs. Yeah, and the universities, I think, is a really good one. Um, yeah. In line with this, the other piece of this is that um, Section 941 conservation mitigation. We've already had a challenge with that. I have had a challenge with that. So I think if we are doing these kinds of mapping situations that are used as guidance, um, we need to have also then, you know, if we can't do the mitigation, then what, you know, what does that look like? If, if we can't do avoidance, what does mitigation look like? So I would say it's a fair assessment that we would help us all pulling together some I think this is probably, yeah, on the applications we've had, but we had no comment from wildlife people. It's like, great, you know, you know there's animals in that area and you've seen them. And they continue to take the time and comment. They were much more participatory when it was oil and gas, but even their comments were more general versus an up or down. Like, we never got a don't do this. We, there was recognition. There might have been some discussion about mitigation, but it was We're really limiting construction time. Yeah, they, so like kind of to your point, Ren, on the smaller things we might not hear from them, but on the bigger things they did, at least in the past, participate. I felt like a lot more because um, they felt like their input was actually 
needed possibly a lot of the constraints of having the money and everything. You know, is that something that Sonia and I talked about this yesterday that the GIS mapping can be useful for as another layer that you can turn on and off just to at least have the, the data compiled in one spot instead of having a different map or a different something. It's at least in one particular location. You can turn it on and off. Yeah, and the other thing about the 55s is this 55 today and that one tomorrow and this one the next day. And then the cumulative impacts of this make it more significant. And so that's something that we think about with the landscape level planning is looking at, you know, if, if they're not going to prioritize the small parcels, we need that context. Do you think development, say, say housing or other forms of development are more impactful or just as impactful maybe as the recreation end of it? Because it seems like a lot of the wildlife interactions and concerns, especially in the community, are coming from overuse of the land recreation from a recreation standpoint versus maybe our development that's that's occurring. Mostly because we haven't had a ton of we haven't had a lot of, a ton of really gigantic development that's occurred in, in 50 years. I don't know how what the time frame is, but it's been a long time. Large scale development really occurred. It's been much smaller pieces, but the cumulative impacts are starting to pile up enough that it's becoming much an issue. So, like, you know, an example with a recent amendment hearing with the Nevada Department of at the solar summit that personally I feel like in my data and my perception could be completely wrong but our level of manageable recreation is starting to approach a tipping point and it's, it's becoming more problematic than it has ever been in the past and going back again to the snowmass planning summit the guys from Gunnison the, the uh, state water wildlife and CPW guys we're really focused on much of what occurs occurs in a very close radius to the intensity of use 
the parking lot and making sure those facilities can handle that helps would help them immensely because once you move out a little bit further it becomes a little bit less of a use so you know how do we address getting our current recreation areas up to standard to handle the uses that we have right at this time before considering possibly any more recreational uses yeah, one thing we can go to Zoom, like things are doing for wildlife stuff. So I don't know if you want to see the comment later or how this works. We're still on wildlife. Is there anybody specifically on Zoom uh, attending to make comments on wildlife? They usually raise your hand feature for reactions. I think Jeff, Jeff is just trying to weigh in, but he's not. Are you unmuted, Jeff? There we go. Okay, so I just unmuted myself. Yeah, I was trying to find the hand, but I could not find the hand anywhere to raise it. <laughs> so um, I'll give you guys a quick uh, little background. I am a former uh, parks and wildlife biologist. I was here in Steamboat. Oh, around 15 years total. So a lot of your comments are spot on, um, especially in regard to commenting that our staff had done in the past, um, oil and gas in particular, and the county was always really good about listening to what we had to say. You're, you're totally spot on with a lot of what we were allowed to comment on and types of comments we were allowed to make are dictated by who's the governor and what they think and what the priority is. Um, staffing is definitely an issue on why people don't get out and make comments. But, you know, that's, uh, that wasn't really like what I was getting on here to speak about. I, I was really just going to bring up things because I've lived here long enough and I've seen things change over time. I've seen the impact of what developments having on wildlife in, in just my area alone. Um, and it, the 55-acre parcel thing is so similar to where I live. I got, I got one new neighbor on a 40-acre parcel, and that has changed wildlife use out here dramatically. It's shocking. We used to have about 90 elk that came down in the fall and early winter. We're down to maybe 12 or 15 come down in the past four or five years, ever since things changed with fencing, Barking dogs, running at large, chasing wildlife off. It's just night and day difference. So it, it can be a, that small of a thing. One one house going in on 40 acres is just, I don't have near the deer, got a few antelope that come by, but they're not in the numbers we used to have. Um, so even though CPW may not be making comments or be able to provide you all the data that you want. I think somebody had made a comment about folks are out there in the landscape and you see what what uh, wildlife there is locally. And it's I think it's on us to make comments when there's a proposal for some kind of a development or some sort of infrastructure thing that's gonna happen in our areas and pay attention to what's going on and make comments to you all so you know, you know what we think, what we see and what impacts that's gonna have. Um, having said that, I do believe you're able to download quite a few files um, from Parks and Wildlife that have various wildlife species on them 
and should be able to add a bunch of those layers to your maps if you haven't gotten those already. So that would definitely be something to look into on that. Um, the other thing, um, as you all know, the highways are getting busier, more and more people here all the time. Speeds seem to be increasing. Um, the migration corridor stuff and highway crossings, even, well, road crossings. I'm not even going to say highway crossings, it's not all highways. The county's got tons of roads out there that are getting high use as well. And we need to be paying attention to that, um, trying to figure, and, and CPW has a bunch of data, and I don't know how much of that is out there from radio collared animals. They're going to show crossing areas um, when they go in the spring, when they come back in the fall, where they're spending the summers, that sort of thing, concentration areas. There's a lot of that information already out there. You just be doing some digging and making some contact to find that kind of thing. Um, and I guess that's where I was kind of going with the, the corridor thing. So we got corridors out there. And yeah, you want to, if you got a big project coming up, you want to pay attention to that, how that might impact deer or elk migrations. But even that one single house in the wrong spot can change thing a bunch, things a bunch. Um, it, it impacts deer a lot more than it does elk just because of the biology, the way the deer function. Mule deer are kind of hardwired to travel migration corridors to and from win winter and summer ranges. And if you look at those radio collared deer with the GIS telemetry information, year after year, they will follow a very narrow band somewhere. And so if you cut off that band somehow with some sort of infrastructure, we'll just, we'll, we'll make something up, say a big, I don't know, solar field. <laughs> and now it alters where those deer go. Maybe it blocks their access to get across where they're trying to go. Is that going to like eliminate those deer? Probably not eliminate them. It may reduce their numbers because they literally can get trapped. We had an example in North Park, just with a high fenced area. It was a section of ground that the landowner put a high fence up on and probably 30 mule deer got trapped in there. And by the time we were, they weren't trapped in the fence. They were trapped in a corner of it, couldn't get out. Winter came. We finally had to go in and dart the remaining live deer, which probably two thirds of them were still alive. We had to trap them and dart them and move them out of there because they couldn't figure out how to get out of that high fence. Even though it wasn't completely surrounding them, they didn't know how to get around it. So that's just examples of things that happen with wildlife, the, the things you don't even think about going on. I know I'm kind of rambling here, and if you guys have questions for me, you know, feel free to, to shoot, shout it out to me, and um, I'll answer anything as best as I can. I'm hoping, sir, as your main recording, I'm sure she does, but I suspect Jeff will be back in touch with you as we move further along <clears throat> the details of wildlife. Uh, we do have, I know, it's subject to a building permit, but if it's over a four or five foot fence, like an eight foot high fence requires a building permit. You know, I believe. Four yeah, anything over six. Yeah, there you go. It's a number. So that's the number we're currently dealing with. But in case you haven't met any mule deer or elk, not too many you can jump a six foot fence. And uh, the DOW or DBW, which they now call it does have things called game racks that you can see along state highways. And if we see those type of fences up there, maybe what we should be doing, I'm working on a number of these 
wildlife corridors, including Highway 9 with the tunnels we all drive through. Um, that resulted in 90% less interactions between automobiles and wildlife. It was tremendously successful. But the, the game ramps and the ways for the deer and elk to get through are critical. And so I suspect we'll be back in touch with each other. Um, Cedar Bow regard, you have your hand up. You have a comment on wildlife. Can you hear us? I can. Can you hear me? <clears throat> yeah. Sorry, I can't be there. I, I found myself on the front range today. First time in about a year. Anyway, um, I appreciate the, the discussion. I really like the idea of an, a wildlife impact overlay in the GIS mapping. So I feel like a lot of these new owners, if we just had that overlay and we could educate them of their own impacts, they might, you know, it's pretty easy to, to pull at the heartstrings of someone if they know what their impacts are. I feel like we don't do a good enough job educating the, uh, the new landowners as they move in. And then, you know, to kind of second Jeff Yost's comments, the, the wildlife corridors, for example, having been <clears throat> born and raised in Steamboat, there's a where the uh, Sinclair station is, there was a wildlife corridor that went all the way up to Fish Creek Falls and the <clears throat> elk and deer and bear and everything kind of, it kind of broke Steamboat in half and they would migrate through that little valley. And if, you know, that one's unfortunately no longer a valid, but now currently, you know, we'll see you turn about kind of cross 131 or 131 and 40 meet, you know, every spring and fall. If we knew where those spots were, when we get to that point where we have a, you know, a highway of death that just nonstop cars and maybe mitigated for that and maybe allowed those, <laughs> those populations to exist, I, it sure would be a good feeling if we could proactively uh, in, in, our, in our management plan mitigate those that would be fantastic so appreciate the uh discussion thank you thank you anybody else that's on zoom that would care to comment on the wildlife issue something that was reiterated this morning in our technical working group but it's not just wildlife you know it's hard to like list all the impacts like the ecological and, uh, water quality all the other environmental impacts but you know, you say wildlife impact that would generally mean all those things. Um is there anything working now that you're like don't touch it? Speak now or forever hold your peace. <laughs> and and it sort of really relates to number four, which is that we are recommending the UDO. Um, and in doing the UDO, you are likely not going to get a redline version of your code because we're sort of starting over. Um, and so if there's something that you feel it really is working, we, we do want to know that so that we don't we just kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Um, but kind of so anything that's working and any questions, comments, concerns about the UDO approach? It sounded like this group was comfortable with it. But. I think the five-way subdivision of the Steamboat Lake, which has been around since 1992 or something like that, but worked pretty well. Do you mean the lot consolidations? Yes. Yeah. 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 A lot of consolidations. And 
we've done a few of them, stagecoach, but not as many as Steamboat Lake. And I understand that two different large subdivisions that came before the capital in the early 70s. And yet, I just look at it, and the stuff that's out there in stagecoach is never going to get hooked up to Morrison Creek. Certainly not in my lifetime, but probably not. So I think maybe you should be doing something to encourage more of that in the stagecoach area. Because I know I've read in the paper you know, about the availability of uh, vaults, right? And, that the, yeah. and how many of those are available and how many aren't available. I've never been to the back end of stagecoach months. There's still a lot of lots out there that South could be developed. Yeah, exactly. We're taking our consultants tomorrow. Yeah. Excited. Oh, you're gonna, you're gonna, yeah. But stagecoach to me hasn't been under that same sort of consolidation uh, as far as the scope of the thing, yet basically equal in size. That's not what, you know, they're close. I think that has to do with the vaults directly because if you're buying a lot in Super Lake, those are the you have a lot more the vaults have been maybe a crutch as opposed to a band-aid in that they haven't, you know, people buying a lot in stagecoach don't necessarily want to get rid of it because they're like, well, maybe there is still some one more hope in Steamboat Lake, they don't have that. So we do see, if you're, you're right, it's, it's something I don't really think about every day, but there are a lot more consolidations up in Steamboat Lake where you otherwise cannot do anything with those small lots versus stage shows where you can. And maybe there's, maybe we need to look at it differently as well. I mean, the vaults are kind of more secret than I suppose, but whether our regulations can somehow incentivize getting away from that, or if we say, no, this is... That's definitely not something we call the But that, that's good to hear that that process is working well and, and we want to make sure that that's maintained as we move forward. I'm actually a bit concerned with the idea that if we require some of the using indications, that that might make it more onerous for people consolidating. I don't think it's something we should take off this list because I think we should definitely encourage it more heavily than we do. But if there's a situation where someone needs to consolidate, but the utility wants to put in, you know, they've got a line through that person's property, I don't think we should think that disqualify them from from vacation. We're sorry, disqualify them from consolidation. It does, and I've definitely done a couple quick and dirty, you know, two lot consolidations for someone that just wants to put a garage on the other side. And I'm like, well, if I had made them both feel much bigger, they wouldn't have done it. But I think in the consolidations and the rezones, I think it's appropriate there because they're already going for the rezone, they're going to planning commission and the board no matter what. So it's really the only thing you're adding is the is the cost of the application. But we already incentivize those consolidations by a uh, 50 percent reduction in the the application fee for a zone change and then being able to for those to be heard on planning commission and the board of county commissioners consent agenda so um something that was mentioned earlier today was you want to incentivize and make the things you want to encourage easy to do and then the things that you 
don't want to do or you want to discourage, make those harder. And so I think if we could go kind of in that direction, I think that would certainly, I think that would work well for us. Anything else, Karen? Um, we do have a few slides on solar, just kind of coming off the solar summit. Um, that we'll get to really quickly and then see if there's any other comments. Okay. Um, I'm not gonna talk through this. You have this in your packet. It's the proposed code outline. And um, next slide, you can see it's it's pretty detailed. So what we've done is, is we've identified kind of new chapter, what it does and what your current chapter is just to kind of track that. Um, are you going to then have things that are new things that are identified as what's brand new? Because there's some stuff that is just sort of missing. So um, I would say at a staff level, if there's something that like a linkage that's missing to your current code, kind of write that up for us. So that Not we can things that are that. missing in the current code. And so anything that is included here that doesn't have a code section, it's listed as not applicable. Okay. Or maybe there's some parts that, you know. Yeah, have, I just didn't know how yeah. they were listed. That's all. I just yeah. wanted to clarify. Yeah. Um, so if, if you've got questions, I think kind of read this and, and provide any comments to um, Christy and um, Alan and Michael about the code outline. I, it's like such a level of detail that we don't. And so I think this document's going to be useful once we get the draft regulations from them, because like she said, we're not getting a red line version. We are getting a brand new set of regulations that's not going to look or resemble our current ones at all. So when you're reading through that, you'll be able to say, uh, I wonder what the, the existing code says. Then you'd be able to go to this document and say, oh, it's section 8.17, go to 8.17, and then you're, you'd be able to see what the existing code says versus what the proposed language will be. It'll be a good read for everybody when we get there. I can tell them all. <laughs> um, okay, so on solar, um, so this is um, a map of the Hayden area, and the areas that are in yellow are um, those areas that are identified as. Um, potentially great locations for, for solar. Um, the purple is the Sand Hill annexation area. Uh, so this is, yes. yeah, this is Haiti. Yeah. So the, um, the area that's, the yellow that's on the right is just south of the existing um, station, Hayden station. Um, and then the state land board property is the, the property on the left. And th this is just an idea of, of where solar might might occur. Where's that information from? Uh, from the interest we have. Um, on the left, that's all state land board. It's not. No. A, a big big portion of it is state land board, but it's mixed with private property. So um, this is kind of an example of kind of the size, right? That. We're, we're looking at. And we're talking about 
And these aren't the specific locations, but this is a general idea just to, to, to give context as to um, why we have prioritized um, utility scale solar. Is that all currently AF zoned or is some of that money zoned? Uh, and, uh, it's all yeah. Yeah. 61 is seasonal. Yeah. 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 How much does Hayden's planning get to participate in some of this discussion? Because it's like, even though some of this is mostly proposed in the county, it seems like they have a real vested interest in some of the decision-making process. Is there a way to fold them in or at least get they're, they're aware. So they're, they are aware of... Within um, the three miles, isn't it? Yeah, they, they've been approached, but also, um, you know, like any application, there would be a referral yeah. agency. And then that was why we had our solar um, conference last night um, held in the Strategic. And, uh, most of the all of the folks that attended lived in the town of Hayden. I have I should have asked the state the state land board when they were on the line yesterday. Much of the state land board leases property to agriculture and would they be seeking to terminate those ag leases or would they allow their lessees to sublet from, you know, so that the, the ag still maintains the use? Really? I don't know about this site specifically, what that looks like. Conversation. You can flip that fire slide on the same big block. This is an early version, but uh, the state land board owns land up above that to the north of that northern big block. And quite a bit of land in there, they do have leases. I've been in the about this, but that face is south. And then some of the stuff they have identified in South 59 faces north. Uh -huh. and I think most of your solar panels, unless I'm missing something, you want to generally face south. Yeah. So there's some details that we need to be working on. And it, you know, like what we've been told, it's not going to necessarily be like one basket or, you know, cover in every other cranny. But that's the general perimeter. Question on the solar. We're talking about going in on the first stage. Yeah. Um, to what extent are you going to address remediation if will be taken out or that would be what included. the requirements are in that regard? And those solar leases for private landowners typically will go to that subject. 
Yeah, so um, the the solar regulation would include the remediation piece. So the kind of ideation, kind of the beginning part, planning for that, construction, usage, remediation. So the idea is that it would cover that life cycle. Any bonding or anything of that type to assure that the movement? Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I suggested yesterday that yeah. it be approached similar to how we approach gravel pits or other mining yeah. operations. It's of it's that same bond. scale. There's yeah. some type of reclamation plans that we require and bonding that we require. It seems appropriate on a utility level scale. Yeah, and you know, I specifically referenced the mistake that we made on a solar tower and how we didn't specify that when the, if the solar or if the cell tower didn't come online, it had to be taken down. And we missed it in early on in our discussions about cell towers, and we have a cell tower in South Route that's non-functional. We have no mechanism to say if you're not utilizing it, remove it. And it's still a big gap in service if we need it to be coming online. So I think we're going to approach this with our eyes a little bit more wide open. No, this one's been. It was 2012. <laughs> but then they came back to increase it like 20 feet or something. And that was maybe five or six years ago. But And they that, put the top on. But yeah, that didn't help. And it didn't do anything. No. They didn't do It's not. It's not active. And so I think we have very much in mind. Yeah, we have very much in mind the mechanisms that we need to have in place. For there was talk about um, bankruptcy in an instance of a, something going bankrupt. And so I think it's at at least at the planning level, it's very much going to be talked about. And I did just for going back to the mapping of elk migration on my handy dandy tablet provided by <laughs> this is google earth and i was able to download a elk wildlife habitat map in google earth i don't have a legend but so so the information is sort of out there for sure so it took me a minute to figure it out but i figured it out i know i'm slightly younger than Maybe some <laughs> <laughs> hey, you guys like to get on me. You forget. You forget. <laughs> so, specific to the solar regulations, so some some things I think we've um, we've talked about with staff um, includes thinking about housing impacts, so that temporary workforce housing, the visual impacts, impacts to wildlife. I think some of the things that we heard about yesterday are um, maybe access points, the bonding piece, the remediation, um, setbacks. So this was something that was a really interesting conversation at the um, open house, where when you're thinking about um, where should large-scale solar be, it's just like a wildlife corridor, right? Wildlife don't care about property boundaries. And same thing, the best location for a solar panel may be across a property line. And so thinking about how do we deal with this type of development in a setback? So that kind of just technical piece. Sounds more of adjustment. And then thinking about performance standards um, and looking at um, solar at the site scale as well as the landscape scale. 
And so I think that's something that's maybe a theme that's not just to solar, it's to kind of all of the conversations that we've heard. It seems like on performance standards, when we're talking about any type of development, that there needs to be this linkage of what is that landscape scale? What is the impact that this one site development is going to have on the overall landscape, whether that's from a wildlife um, corridor or otherwise? Um, so those are some of the things that we're thinking about and, and, and planning to include, um, but wanted to see, is there anything else or anything you have questions about relative to um, solar regulations? What's the life expectancy of the panels? It's about 25. Uh, that, that wasn't life expectancy, that was warranty. That's efficiency, efficiency so. Warranty. They, their life is I mean, quite he's long, actually. He said he still has a panel from the early 70s that is still producing electricity, but what it happens is that it degrades over time, so it becomes less efficient. So that 20 to 25 years is when you get to that 80% efficiency. And so at that point, the developer has the decision to make, are we going to continue with this facility? If the answer is yes, then do we replace those panels? And then I think he was saying like 95, 97% of the components in a solar panel is recyclable glass, aluminum, and some rare earth metals. And all of that is recyclable. And the industry is now getting to that, um, that critical mass where it makes recycling feasible. Because first, the solar panels of any massive scale were installed about 20 years ago. And so now those are coming to their end of useful life. And so the 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 recycling infrastructure is about to to ramp up significantly because the scale of the amount of material that there is to recycle is about to really ramp up as well economically viable yeah and it was a 50 year old panel he said was still 60 percent efficient so he was advocating for some programs that allow those panels to maybe have another life somewhere else if possible to maybe they're not as well performing but they still end up producing and the technology i had a specific question about the the scope of the technology is really rocketing right now because it's being unleashed and so 25 year period i think linda and um jim and i were talking about how like to me it initially seemed like it was short too short but it might actually be kind of right in the zone to be able to assess technology changes as they come along. And how we reviewed gravel pits every five years. I know there's a topic in here, something about the gravel pit review, but the five-year review seems to work fairly well. I think we determined that that works well within our the planning commission constraints. The technology, you're basically saying the technology is changing rapidly. Uh, yeah, they may want to come in and replace panels. may need some review by the planning commission to address that because it may not be as simple as just putting new panels on because the technology could be bigger than that. They could come in and ask for less room because they're so much more efficient, or they want to keep it the same and double their output. We need to just remain flexible to have those considerations. Right. And they didn't 
that map that you have with the yellow shading, uh, the prior one, what would be useful to add on to that as a planning tool, in my mind, is to show the large overhead lines. You know, that's what's attracting them. Is the, the, I call them wampa lines or walking jumps, right. but the, that's what they're trying to tap into. Right. And to see those graphically on the same map, uh, you know, and that's part of the reason these things are being cited. You know, not part of it, but it's that's the, 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 the only reason. location either. There are other areas of the county that um, have, um, say, similar characteristics, say, posts. That has the lines there, uh, pretty flat, but some, you know, where we, you know, so we can't just focus on this area where we may see applications come in. Yeah, I think what's the certain components? Yeah. We can't write this code. Unless you want to limit to a certain area, that's an option too, but. Yeah. One thing uh, I studied solar quite a bit, and uh, one of the realities of it, <clears throat> I assume that this array is going to be supplying power into the grid. Correct. And they're going to be partners with electric companies and power plants and all that. One of the things that I saw was that I didn't see a real excitement about my solar system feeding power into the grid because those guys. It's coming out of your pocket. Exactly. Can you address that? Uh, well, so that's a that's a going to be a land use code. Yeah, that's yeah. the that's a co-op policy. That's why VEA's policies that um, we hope to engage with them on and try to convince them to loosen those policies up. But they were, that they weren't very interested in helping you. I when when I spoke to them about community scale solar they had absolutely no interest in it because it was going to their infrastructure wasn't up to snuff to be able to handle that and it didn't sound like the members wanted to go through that expense to upgrade that infrastructure we will be meeting with them we've invited the board to come here and have a conversation yeah. with the commissioners about their policies well, and there's there's challenges with the management of that when it's coming in from one source. I, it's a little bit easier to manage versus when it's coming in from a lot of different sources into the grid. It becomes technically a little bit more challenging. I have faith that technology will eventually come up with it, but. From an economic standpoint, you're diluting their revenue potential. So why are they going to let us use the infrastructure um, that they that they own and manage? And and there was a question directly from a member of the community, and it didn't get addressed necessarily so much. But her point was, how come we're not starting at do we want large scale solar, or do we want a different methodology and I think there's some truth to that in having that discussion. Good point because the original vision of solar and wind for that matter was it would be diluted and people would you know be paid back and those revenues paying back went down substantially a few years back and so they're trying to go to these large scale operations now 
whatever happened to the idea of the individual yeah. homeowner being able to supply 20% power? Well, whatever. batteries in your garage that you charge and then they pull off the battery. Great concept is that battery, tons of batteries proliferated throughout everyone's homes, a fire hazard, a Absolutely. challenge. Of, they're so, like, it is far more complex than uh, just making it a very simple thing. There will most likely be batteries associated with these facilities. So taking from the individual battery, they are creating some capacity for storage to meet demand. I think there's a solution somewhere in there, but again, it does dilute down to, is this what Route County wants and needs? Does it provide value? And that's where the larger discussion comes in further down the road. It, and that's after being there yesterday, it's exactly what I walked out thinking that as a community, we should be either pushing or doing the analysis ourselves to understand exactly where the property tax revenue is. You know, here we are trying to offset a loss, losing the mining companies that are that have been supplying significant value, property tax value to our communities, school system, et cetera. And we got a little one slide yesterday about this this wonderful potential for property tax value. Um, these that solar panels. Wind generation. You didn't pick up on that. I'm sorry, say that. That again. was from wind generation. Yeah, yeah. I. It was hard for me to see exactly the, the literature in the in the pie, but it, this this solar these impacts to our wildlife accumulated impacts are and we're not going to see a dime in utility reduction, electricity reduction, and and what are we going to see in a property tax revenue standpoint? I think that's what we push harder um, than in addition to some of this zoning issues that we have so it should also be a sales tax component in there because they are selling this well there was uh, i think amy williams from hayden planning mentioned that her, her analysis was that if the revenue offset doesn't come high enough she felt that the commercial was going to bear the, the most of the burden from an increased standpoint. The residential might not be quite as high, but it has to, it had the revenue has to switch from somewhere to somewhere else. And that was, I thought that was a good point. I, I, I it's hard for us from a land planning standpoint because we don't get to do much with taxes. We can acknowledge that the impact is critical, but we, some of that comes from the state and we don't get to anything with it at the county level, unfortunately. Yeah, because that distribution would come directly from the state. It wasn't clear to me from when they went through that slide fairly quickly, how much revenue is Rock County really going to see? And I know you guys got to ask that question. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. But 
man, I'm just looking at it going, if you were crunching some numbers yesterday and this 4,000 acres you're talking about is close to offsetting the Hayden Station, if they had the numbers generally yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's nowhere near going to offset it. Nowhere near. So what what COSA has said, that's the Colorado Storage Solar and Storage Association, is that Excel has promised to keep the community whole on property taxes for let's seven say years. seven years. And so if they this is an Excel project, this project would generate X number of dollars in, in terms of property taxes. They then get to subtract the the property tax generated by the solar facility from that amount that they said they would keep the community whole at so it in essence reduces excel's promised tax burst burden to the community over the in the future well you would still be collecting the the property tax on the solar facility but and i but Excel, I, I think, I, I don't know if Excel is required to make the community whole for the seven years. They were just doing that out of the goodness of their heart. <laughs> well, it is in their PEC file. It is, okay. Yes. Okay. Well, so. I think that there's, 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 That's not going to hurt Hayden. It's going to hurt his community. Yeah, well, that's I'm I'm looking for a million dollars for the South Route School District because right. that's what we're losing. Right. And it's critical to me that 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 is in place. I don't think I have really much influence on it from a land planning standpoint. It's just a desire to see that district remain whole. I I don't know from a, from the planning commission what we can do maybe. Commissioners have a little bit more influence in that particular arena. Yeah, and you know, quite honestly, with that's crystal ball because I really thought that we'd be looking at that power plant closing within a year from now. And now, with the Ukraine situation, they've got these overseas contracts, and they're probably going to be producing more coal than they have in years. But how long will that last? We have a desirable product for sure. Right. That low sulfur, low sulfur, low sulfur coal. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing as drafted mine. I was looking out there last week and was surprised that we're really no longer talking about like a 2028, 2029 shutdown date anymore. And we're starting to look further out than that. And some of it's just because. Solar isn't there yet. You know, it's just not, and wind or not, the alternative energy is not there to get on the grid. But I, I think we're going to be looking at mining longer term in this community than what we were told a year ago. The mining might stick around. I Just based off of what Excel's comments were to me yesterday, 
the plant will probably convert to natural gas or some other type of alternative. Um, but the plant, the plant necessarily moved and go away. It still might be there functioning in some form. But he said, and, and, and coming from an industry guy, I get it. Colorado has made coal unrealistic. Sort of partially true, not. If you're taking subsidies to make these improvements to your environmental impacts, you're not actually experiencing a cost to make your plants burn cleaner. So, but he, the Colorado, it's, he sounded like Excel was just me moving away. Now, natural gas being cheap is a function of that. But that plant and probably the tri-state plant, in my opinion, will remain for a period of time beyond what they're talking about. And when we talk in 20 mile coal, they've been talking to me recently, and I wasn't aware of this, but between each seam of coal, there are rare earth minerals. And we also have to keep in mind that Peabody has approval for a a, a brand new mine that yeah the the, the the portals there and they just have to figure out a way to get the coal from the mine to the wash plant at at the existing mine portals. I think that's the 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 big thing that's holding that one up, and of course economics. But they have it. They have a permit from the state, they have a permit from the county for a, a brand new mine. I was telling them earlier, the tour, you remember the tour, mm -hmm. it was awesome. And if you can arrange something like that again, possibly that, that was a great opportunity you guys provided. And thank you, because it was eye opening as Peabody. Yeah, Peabody. So, <laughs> we're at almost 8.30. Um, how many more slides? Yeah. Next step slides. Yeah. Perfect. All right. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> we are hosting a small group meeting tomorrow morning, which we mentioned earlier, um, which will be kind of discussing in similar fashion. Um, questions about um, the development communities' experiences using the code, opportunities and challenges um, to get their input as well. Um, we have been going on tours in the last couple of days, and we have another one tomorrow. Um, and then, kind of moving in the near future, um, we'll be circling back with the technical working group. So we did meet with them um, today and um, began the process of discussions of introductions about the project, but also introducing solar to them as well. And we'll be working with them um, to review that initial code language and um, that kind of next round of actual dates for community engagement is still kind of to be decided. Um, but as Christy mentioned, um, we're working diligently to update Navigate Your Route um, to be a hub for information for this project. Um, and certainly we'll be announcing through all of the communication channels that we have available to our team um, to get information out as we start that kind of more public facing engagement, looking towards that community meeting number one. And 
this is our schedule. So again, I think just thinking through, we're hoping kind of late May, early June, starting to get the 50% draft, 90% um, draft, which would then kind of be ready for an adoption process. Is that kind of June, July when we're starting then the 50% for module two. So again, just that stacking and this just shows that stacking process happening. And so you will continue to see more of us over <laughs> over the coming months as we as we work through. So, thank you. Um, this has been really valuable. Just really, really appreciate all the feedback. Good job, so planning commission meet next week um, on the fourth. Uh, we have one application scheduled. Uh, no, next week is just there's one application. It's a uh, cowgirl compost. She's moving her existing location as at the bar you eats facility and she's moving it to a new location. So needs a new permit. And then we will be having a meeting on May 18th as well. There's going to be a consolidation and easement vacation in stagecoach. Yeah. I, so, but that'll be on consent agenda. Then we've got conceptual and sketch, conceptual PUD sketch subdivision for the Clark store. Um, and then that's on the 18th. And then there's a zone change application for a property uh, about two and a half, three miles north of Yampa. So, and the board will be, Commissioners will be hearing that the, all those as well. So, well, th we're just telling you about upcoming applications. So, I think it was June 1st. I think so. And that's a wrap. Thank you. Thank you. It's like that cabin additional property. Yeah, yeah. Did he, he tried to do that and he got turned into all that. Uh, yeah, he was operating on that and then like he built some tent, tent platforms and he wasn't using the cabins. 